Hello and welcome back to another edition of NAMT Radio. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence. And this time round, we're going to talk about sepsis. And sepsis month is coming up in September. And interestingly, there are some uh, statistics that we really need to take note of. And uh, those are quite uh, sobering, that uh, sepsis is the leading cause of death in US hospitals. 6% of hospitalizations are caused by sepsis, and of that, 35% of in-hospital deaths are caused by sepsis. And of course, as we all know, it can be caused by any infection, whether it's viral, fungal, parasitic, or bacterial. And so to help us along uh, to discuss this, I have two of the authors of the third and fourth edition of our AMLS publication, and that's Dr. Karin Merlander and Ron Duckworth. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good so to see you, uh, I'm all about uh, self-introductions and so that I don't uh, particularly mess it up. So would you like to give us a brief introduction, uh, Karen? Uh, well, my name's Karen Molander. I'm an emergency medicine physician living in the Bay Area of California. have completed over 27 years of clinical medicine and uh, have been a volunteer for Sepsis Alliance, which is uh, the largest nonprofit in the patient advocacy space regarding sepsis, and just completed a chairmanship uh, in that role. And that's how I had the wonderful pleasure of meeting Ram Duckworth. And I'm Ram Duckworth. I'm on the other side of the country um, in a a small combination fire department, Richfield, Connecticut, uh, ground ambulance transport, uh, about an hour outside of New York City. And uh, I also became involved with the Sepsis Alliance, trying to learn a little bit more uh, about sepsis uh, that when I took my paramedic class back in the day, they just really didn't talk about it as a pre-hospital concern and um, got involved on the Sepsis Alliance Advisory Board. And uh, again, w- uh, was very fortunate to meet uh, Karen and the rest of the crew. Excellent. Well, welcome to both of you. And uh, we'll talk about the uh, Sepsis Alliance and, of course, uh, identify how we can uh, uh, read all about that and and link into that later on. But from the website, I actually picked out a great uh, quote, which hopefully will kind of get us into the discussion. And uh, while sepsis is an equal opportunity killer, you've got to love that phrase, impacting the sick, the well and people of all ages, some groups are more likely to be affected. These include young children, old adults, those with weakened immune systems, uh, racial and ethnic minorities, and lower income individuals and families. And so an equal opportunity killer, that's very sobering. But let's just go back to basics. Let's have a bit of a 101. And for those that may be new to NEMT, maybe new to our profession, explain sepsis. Uh, Let's have a soup to nuts. Who wants to go first? Sepsis is your body's overwhelming response to an infection. And this can be an infection of many different types. So viral infection, very common during our most recent pandemic, bacterial infection, like a urinary tract infection, pneumonia, or appendicitis. Um, It can be from a parasitic infection, like malaria, very common in sub-Saharan Africa. Or it can be from a fungus very common in patients who are immunocompromised or people who have had organ transplants are at much higher risk of having an infection from a fungus. And the way that kind of the classic definition of sepsis is that overwhelming response can sometimes cause a change in vital signs. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that, Ram? 
Well, there are a lot of different ways to identify sepsis um, indirectly. Unfortunately, there's no one individual test. There's no set biomarker in or out of the hospital. It's all about assessment. And that's where I think that, quite frankly, the EMS is really set well for field and early identification of sepsis. It's about identification of the right vital signs. Um, now, of course, all different providers of all different levels working in all different kinds of systems, there's no one set grouping of vital signs either. Um, but it, for me, it really comes down to the fundamentals of, one, identify infection. This, does this patient have infection or do we suspect they have infection, even if we can't prove it yet? And number two, do they have significantly altered vital signs? Now, depending on the system that you work in, those significantly altered vital signs might be different numbers depending on your individual sepsis protocols, or maybe you don't even have specific sepsis protocols. Um, but if you have to back up and, and punt in a way, it's altered vital signs. Uh, and your level of certification or licensure and the system in which you work is going to determine exactly you know, whether you can... Uh, take um, blood pressure, MAP, um, pulse, a shock index, uh, end tidal CO2. There are a lot of different ways to measure it. Um, but basically, if you see deviated blood pressure pulse, uh, especially circulatory um, vital signs in the presence of infection, that's when we start to suspect sepsis. And very simply, and again, the numbers can change, if you suspect sepsis, and you look at this patient and say, this patient is in shock, then we're at septic shock. And I realize that's very, very broad, but we're talking about hopefully things that everybody who's listening to the podcast can use regardless of their level or regardless of the system they're in. I think the key thing is as uh, when and being a first responder that you're throwing out a broad net. And there is a reason that they're called vital signs. They're not called optional. They're called vital. So if you can get a temperature, if you can truly document a patient's respirations, if you can truly document their pulse, their cap refill, their blood pressure, you're really setting yourself up for having a more successful differential diagnosis as to cause of why that person is prompting an EMS call. And don't forget mentation. That, that is a very important part of the picture too. If there's been a change in mentation, you're right, Rom. Something you said a minute ago really, really struck a, a, a memory memory point here that the word sepsis never never featured in the old manuals, right? And of course, that may all just age us, first of all, but uh, it's a thing. It's here, and so have we been doing a good job in actually identifying it, or? Is there, you know, are we short of what, what would be a target? Well, a lot of the numbers uh, that we're looking at for EMS ability to identify sepsis, we tend to look at before, you know, just sort of from clinical judgment and their basic training. Um, and then we usually look at it after education. And although the numbers vary a tremendous amount, it, it, we do know that education really makes a big difference. Uh, we, we usually see numbers jump for anywhere from 25 to 30% uh, up to as strong as 50% or more. Again, they're all over the place, but what we know is that taking some time to dig into it, just like this podcast, can improve our ability, or both our awareness that sepsis is a thing so that we're looking for it, and then our ability, once we're looking for it, 
to be able to identify that infection, those altered vital signs, uh, and hopefully leading it to calling a sepsis alert or a code sepsis so that we can alert our colleagues in the emergency department and just keep things rolling. And that that's not to say that we're not going to continue or initiate treatment in the field, that all we're doing is that code sepsis or sepsis alert. Um, but that's that's really a key so that we have these sepsis patients really need that continuity of care started as early as possible and then continued through their care in the hospital. I think the key thing is that by having EMS providers say that they are concerned about sepsis, by having them start an IV, by having them start IV fluids, they're greatly improving the likelihood of that patient successfully walking out of the hospital. So those are the key things, saying the term, I am concerned about sepsis. So that is why education is so important. All right, well, let's go back to the education. I'm sitting here looking at my sepsis training officer and my sepsis medical director in the uh, in the Rob Lawrence EMS system. So what's the training program going to be to educate and then remind and then refine and then ensure great practice? What? How would you lay your program out? The first thing I would do is, uh, as you said, you know, you, you let people know the the startling numbers. I mean, even worldwide, it's even worse. The World Health Organization is looking at a, a numbers of approximately twenty sepsis being about approximately twenty percent of all calls cause deaths globally. Um, and when I look back on it, um, when I look at these numbers, uh, the meaning that I get from it is how many patients with sepsis or septic shock have I missed? Maybe I knew that they were very, very sick, but I wasn't able to determine it. And, and it, I wasn't able to up my care as a pre-hospital provider. Um, or maybe I, I, I didn't even recognize how sick they were and they slipped by. Um, and once we've established why we're doing this, why we're looking at it, um, raising that level of awareness of how many patients have sepsis, and then not only identifying, as we've already talked about here, that would certainly be part of the program, um, and a little bit more in-depth in the pathophysiology because it, it gets technical but interesting. But I think most importantly is then then what do we do about it? Um, and again, it, it's that key of that sepsis alert uh, and the care, those uh, that your ABCs, airway management, um, making sure the patient's um, ventilation and oxygenation are good. Uh, and then with sepsis, especially that uh, fluid administration. And um, I think, Rob, it would depend on whether the Rob Lawrence EMS uh, ambulance service uh, was one that our, our medical director said we were going to be using things like lactate measurements or pre-hospital antibiotics. There are, There's some different variation um, with that, um, but we want to make sure that our people were educated and not just competent uh, in identifying, assessing, and treating sepsis, but as Karen said, confident. Confident so that anyone on the team who was concerned about sepsis, even if somebody else missed it, could be a patient advocate in that way and call that alert, call that code sepsis or, or say in the emergency department or in the back of the ambulance, I'm concerned about sepsis and make sure that this patient didn't didn't fall behind. I think the key thing to remember is that 80 to 90% of cases of sepsis are occurring in the community. So even though you're seeing that super shocking number of one third of deaths in hospitals are due to sepsis, most of them are showing up by ambulance or in the triage uh, center. So 
One of the things that we worked on was to try and increase education of EMS providers to even think about looking for it. So one of the things to think about is in your eight, 10-hour shift that you have, um, you are likely to have at least one case of sepsis. Think about how many times you have runs on a daily basis. How often are you getting a STEMI? How often are you getting acute uh, ischemic stroke where someone's paralyzed on half their side? We do a whole lot of education in terms of how to recognize a STEMI and how to recognize a, a stroke. But unfortunately, sepsis is not as sexy. It's not as easily identifiable. It's not like we can just put some EKG leads on them and say, wow, those are tombstones. This is a STEMI. So the key thing for that uh, paramedic in training is, first of all, just have the suspicion. This is an elderly person with a Foley catheter. They're at higher risk of sepsis. Um, this is a child who has not yet had their first set of immunizations. They're less than a month old and they have a fever. So first is just having that suspicion. Actually, that's exactly where I wanted to go because, uh, you, know, un you know, unlike cardiac arrest, unlike blunt and penetrating trauma, you, you, you mentioned strokes. Those are, you know, have some fairly obvious external symptoms. This, uh, I did a podcast with uh, Chris Call a, a while ago who encouraged all paramedics to be the detective, right? This requires some finessing, requires some close examination of the patient. And actually, this is really good pre-hospital medicine or the practice of it obviously to, to come up with these determinations and so you all make excellent points uh, but before we go any further we're just going to take a second and listen to this message over three decades ago phtls pre-hospital trauma life support transformed the assessment and management of trauma patients in the field improving quality of trauma patient care and saving lives around the world. The 10th edition of this trusted, comprehensive resource continues the PHTLS mission to promote excellence in trauma patient management by all pre-hospital care practitioners through global education. In the field, seconds count. The 10th edition of PHTLS Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support teaches and reinforces the principles of rapidly assessing a trauma patient using an orderly approach, immediately treating life-threatening problems as they are identified and minimizing delays in initiating transport to an appropriate destination. To order your copy today, visit psglearning.com or follow the link in the show notes. We're back. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Hit that like and subscribe button. Uh, and to help you out, if you look at your phone and you hit the check mark in the top right-hand corner, it means you've subscribed to this podcast. What happens next is every time an episode drops, you get notified. It's as simple as that. So, like and subscribe. Okay, so we're talking to Rom and uh, Dr. Karin. Let's go through a case study. So, imagine that uh, I'm at home in my garden shed, which I literally am now. I start to feel unwell. Uh, my partner calls 911. You roll up um, and uh, I'm exhibiting those signs and symptoms. So let's talk through that. Okay. Well, Rob, the first thing we would do is come in and find out what was going on, get that history and that backstory, um, do our head-to-toe physical exam. And the first red flag that would pop up that would bring sepsis onto my differential diagnosis, you know, put it on my radar, would be anything related to infection. Uh, 
And if you said, for instance, that you've been sick lately with a chest cold, uh, about 50% of sepsis cases come from respiratory infections. So even something as basic as that. Now, maybe you've got um, bronchitis. And certainly the bronchitis isn't doing you any good, and I'm going to be looking at helping care for that. But anytime infection comes up, sepsis is now on my radar. And certainly as a patient, you have the right to have more than one thing wrong with you. So I'm going to continue with my evaluation, working with my partner to get those vital signs and every tool at my disposal that I'm going to have. And um, we'll say my common tool would uh, include not only regular vital signs, but also end tidal CO2 evaluation. And I'd uh, take a look and, and notice anything that was out of the ordinary. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I especially like that end tidal CO2 is it's going to give me an early indication that your metabolism and your perfusion are a little bit off. And if I've got that, I've got vital signs that don't look right and um, indicators that metabolism or perfusion are a little bit off in the presence of infection. Now, I'm still continuing to care for you, treating my ABCs, but by gosh, I'm bringing sepsis to the forefront as we continue along. Again, you have the right to have more than one thing wrong with you, um, but sepsis is definitely rising on my differential diagnosis. And I, I think some of the key clues to look for when you're evaluating that man in the shed, first of all, try and find someone else who is knows that man in the shed. You know, what is his normal mentation? Is this a highly functioning guy who does a podcast on a weekly basis? Or is this someone who has early signs of cog cognitive decline who gets lost frequently so that you know if he has a change in mentation that this is something acute? So finding a patient advocate, knowing what the patient's medications are. If you have to scoop and run with all the meds, that's fine because as an emergency medicine physician, if I look into that pile and see that the patient was recently on antibiotics, my concern level goes up higher for sepsis. So again, history, you want to find out, is this person status post splenectomy? Like, again, as Ram was talking about disrobing that patient from head to toe, if you don't have a spleen, you're at much higher risk of dying from something as simple as pneumococcal pneumonia. Um, so making sure that you find out that past medical history is super important. Allergies, always important. Um, and then uh, the one of the things that we use in the world of Sepsis Alliance, if I can put that hat on, is uh, we use the TIME acronym. Much like we have acronyms that exist for trying to figure out if someone's having a stroke, the whole uh, be safe. Um, with TIME, what we're looking for is temperature, high or low. Uh, and again, don't forget patients with who uh, sepsis who have a low temperature are at much higher risk of death. So that's why it's so important to determine temperature high or low. And again, also about one fifth will have no temperature at all, making our life entirely confusing. Number two, making sure that they have infection, TI right there. And then M, mental status changes. Again, why mental status changes are so important. We'll come back to QSOFA. Another lovely acronym you guys have probably heard up quite a bit. And then E is feeling extremely ill. So often when we hear patients say, this is the worst I've ever felt, um, you know, it, it can be a, a concerning sign uh, for the lay person for sepsis. 
Excellent. Um, that uh, history taking as well, uh, one of the things that uh, we know from the statistics is that uh, 19% of people who are hospitalised are readmitted within 30 days. So, you know, you're attending the podcaster in the shed. Uh, his partner says, oh, yes, he was in St. Elsewhere 25 days ago. Should be part of the history taken and therefore part of the raised concern, I would imagine. Exactly. Now, Ram, do you want to talk about QSOFA a bit and why um, uh, that might be helpful? We have a lot of challenges with finding the perfect set of vital signs, finding the um, perfect screening tool, and there are a ton of different ones out there. So quick sequential organ failure assessment, and it's based off of the sequential organ failure assessment that ICU doctors are able to do because they have a lot more instruments available to them. They have a lot more measurements available to them. So the sequential organ failure assessment will include stuff like what the patient's creatinine is, what their oxygen saturation level is, what their FiO2 is um, in determining whether the patient is at higher risk of death. So again, it's prognosing your increased risk of death. So QSOFA is QuickSOFA. And what it is looking at is whether someone's systolic blood pressure is less than 90, whether their respiratory rate is greater than or equal to 22, and altered mental status. And what they found is if you have two out of three of those criteria, surprise, surprise, you're at higher risk of death. So it's just uh, uh, an easy way of saying, again, there's a reason that we call them vital signs and not optional signs. If you're not perfusing your brain, you're in dire straits. If you're not perfusing the rest of your organs because you have a low blood pressure, you're in dire straits. Uh, And if you're compensating by trying to increase your respiratory rate, you're in dire straits. And this is a great example of the red flags that you're collecting really anytime you're doing that pre-hospital assessment this specific to sepsis of course is that um don't forget this is in the presence of infection or suspected infection so that's always where we're beginning and then we're picking up these individual vital signs and as we're going as frustrating as it is, it doesn't necessarily tell you that just because a patient has a bad QSOFA score or whatever criteria you're using, that this individual patient in front of you now, this man we picked up in the shed, has sepsis. It's It says they're in a category where they're more likely to die or have a bad outcome. Um, so we're ha- we still have to... Um, We still have to put all of these red flags together like we always do to make a patient picture and then advocate for a patient who may not look terrible at a quick glance like many of our patients are going to have when we first arrive in the emergency department. Sepsis is insidious. It works uh, underneath to slowly erode at a patient's ability to basically stay alive uh, and and keep their their body and and all their vital organs and brain perfused. So that's why sepsis is is so terrible. We can bring the patient into the emergency department, and if we haven't done this identification, sure, they will probably find out how bad this patient is eventually. But so many of these patients in all different parts of the hospital wind up going flying under the radar until a lot of the damage has been done. So our opportunity as pre-hospital providers is to put those red flags together 
um, make sure that we are advocating for the patient saying, I'm concerned about sepsis, activating that code sepsis or sepsis alert. So they go to the front of the line, as it were, even though at quick glance, they may not look terrible. Now, we may want to bring up the fact that sepsis has turned into a bit of a trigger word in the world of emergency medicine. And a large part of that has to do with uh, some very laborious requirements that emergency medicine providers have when it comes to bacterial sepsis. So the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid um, have instituted a series of guidelines that they would like providers to give or recognize the patient with bacterial sepsis. Now, you as a paramedic provider, you do not know whether the patient has parasitic sepsis. Who knows? They might have just gotten off of a plane from Ghana, you know, and were on a safari. So that's malarial sepsis, okay? They may have just had a really bad influenza A. So again, that's viral sepsis. So paramedics, um, it's important for you to say, I am concerned about sepsis. And if you are savvy enough to say this could be viral sepsis, that is a helpful piece of information. Uh, now, the other thing is, we're, as long as we're talking acronyms, we might want to talk about SIRS. Uh, so uh, severe infl inflammatory response syndrome. So SIRS was initial criteria that developed back in 2001 by Roger Bone out of Rush Medical. And what it was showing was that if you had changes in vital signs, um, uh, they could be due to pancreatitis. Uh, but what he was using as a definition of sepsis at that time was infection plus SIRS. And do you want to go through what SIRS is, Ram? Sure. SIRS is any two or more of the following. Um, as you said before, high or low temperature, specifically above uh, 100.4, below 96.8, uh, a heart rate of greater than 90, uh, or a respiratory rate greater than 20, um, or a PaCO2 less than 32, uh, as well as white blood cell counts. And, and honestly... This is where I first started wrapping my head around the role of pre-hospital uh, providers um, in being able to identify sepsis. As I was looking at these SIRS criteria and I realized, okay, in the back of my ambulance, I'm not going to be able to take a white blood cell count. I get that. But even in the critical care arena, they're looking at temperature, heart rate, respiratory rate. That's easily something that I can identify. And this is something that I need to be able to keep an eye out for. Well, and the key thing to remember, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember whether it was Arthur Conan Doyle who said that 80% of the diagnosis is in the history. Um, so that is where you're really providing the most valuable um, point. Um, and the way that I view um, uh, sepsis right now is that we are in the dark ages. We are trying to perform an appendectomy with a butter knife. Um, so just try to imagine. Um, when we did not have CAT scan, when we did not have ultrasound to diagnose appendicitis, because unfortunately, we still have imperfect diagnostics out there. Again, this is a clinical syndrome. The way to think about it is we are walking Petri dishes. We have more bacterial cells on us and in us. And it's just miraculous that we're able to keep sepsis at bay the majority of the time. Our immune system does this wonderful job until dot, dot, dot. 
so I think the key thing to keep in mind is showing a little gratitude toward your job, uh, toward your body when it's doing its job well. And uh, um, but making sure that that you're monitoring for these signs and symptoms and knowing who is at higher risk, the very old, the very young, the immunocompromised. That almost led on to my last question there, Karen, and I, I love the walking Petri dish analogy and uh, how you managed to combine that with Sherlock Holmes is actually amazing. So that's pretty, uh, pretty cool. Um, but yeah, prevention, of course, uh, we're talking about, you know, personal hygiene, we're talking about vaccinations, we're talking about the management of infections. Basically, we're talking about good self-care of the patients before we even get to this point. And one another, right? If you're sick, Take that sick day and stay home. You know, don't don't come into work. In the UK, marginally, you know, marginally well people would stay at home. In the US, marginally sick people go to work because they're committed to to the work. I think uh, the pandemic has uh, knocked that out of us um, at last. Because of course, if you're sick, don't come in and get in, infect people. If you're unwell, stay at home and get better. And so that's really, uh, really, I think, an important point. The, the other thing I want to talk about in terms of identification of sepsis is that uh, just the fact about being a pre-hospital emergency service with paramedics is paramedics out there, you see the patient between minute zero and nine of their, their emergency or their 911 call. The doc may not see the patient until hour one plus of the call of the emergency of the attendants and so obviously the detective work the conan doyle level detective work that has to go in is absolutely crucial because you've got a half you've got an hour to a half an hour to an hour ahead of the dock in terms of what you've seen and therefore what you report back so it is vital the other thing to keep in mind is sometimes you do such a great job at resuscitation by giving the patient iv fluids by then the temperature going down. So by the time they come to my door, they look like a rose. So explaining how altered that patient was is super important. And if I may digress a brief moment, let's think about Typhoid Mary, okay? Do you remember Typhoid Mary? She was this nanny who had uh, typhoid bacteria in her gallbladder and was chronically getting all these young children sick and knocking off kids and getting fired from her job and moving on to the next job. So again, it's so important to stay well uh, when you go into work. Sorry, little little message there. No, that's a, that, that that's a great segue and. Uh... Uh, probably one which with which we can wrap up. Apart from my my final question to you, uh, Karin. Uh, so talk about the Sepsis Alliance and uh, let us know how we can uh, we can we can follow it and get get onto the site. So the site is sepsis.org, and this is a free tool for any and everyone. We have loads of free uh, CME, so feel free to log on. We even have brochures and posters av available. We also have resources for folks who have either had a loved one deal with sepsis or have survived sepsis themselves. Like looking at the three of us here, one of us has been affected by sepsis. That's how common sepsis is, okay? So keep that in mind. So this is a fantastic resource for you to get a better understanding of what sepsis is. Uh, and also, if you want to be involved, let's say you dealt with a horrible, horrible um, uh, ICU hospitalization from sepsis for yourself, 
We have resources there. We have a community that uh, provides uh, free podcasts and um, or free free webinars, and also um, provides um, a community. Uh, of others who've gone through a similar experience. And we'll put all of those links in the show notes. But Rom, I also think you've got a webinar coming up. I do through the Sepsis Alliance at sepsis.org. Uh, if you go in and click and, and look for uh, the section under clinicians uh, and education, I've got a pre-hospital sepsis care research update on August 24th that we're going to do live and uh, really dig more into the research and some of the latest updates and outline a little bit more fully um, assessment and the latest evidence related to the treatments that we can do pre-hospitally and in the hospital. Don't forget, September is Sepsis Awareness Month. And the key at this point is thinking about it, recognizing it, or suspecting it. Uh, and please see if you can make uh, sept- uh, September Sepsis Awareness Month in your state. We do have resources there to help you send a letter to your governor. So there's some amazing resources there. And during the course of this last half an hour, we have uh, covered a lot of ground, actually. Uh, we went from the, the 101, uh, the, the, the basics of it. We got into some pretty cool acronyms. And uh, let me take time to uh, remind us of those, if you don't mind, to see what I did there. Um, don't forget temperature, infection, uh, mental decline and extremely ill. Um, quick sofa, um, which of course is a quick sequential organ failure assessment. And so all of that and more we'll put on the show notes. Uh, we'll put all the links to the stuff that we've talked about. Uh, don't forget, you can read all about it from our two amazing authors in the AMLS uh, publication as well. Uh, and so I, I think we're going to be chock full of references this time around. My standard journalistic question to both of you Is there anything I forgot to ask or anything you've forgotten to mention? I think the most important thing is wash your hands, cover your cough, and please consider getting vaccinated. It really is the the fundamentals of infection control for our patients and for ourselves. The healthcare providers, we all have been hearing it so much, but we got to say it one more time. Uh, We're at risk protect yourself. Social media questions coming up. I'll start with you, Rom, because I love how you answer this question. How can we follow you and what did your parents name you? (laughs) Well, my parents named me Rami Duckworth. uh, And it's uh, unique enough that even on the interwebs, if you just Google Rom Duckworth or Rami Duckworth, you'll find me. um, Emails at romduck at gmail.com, at romduck on Twitter and everywhere else. I'm a pretty easy find and I'm always happy to hear from people. And now let's go to the TikToker that is Karen. How can we follow you? Well, so uh, my newest adventure has been trying to help educate the community. And uh, the website is decipherhealth.com, uh, at decipherhealth on TikTok, and at D-E-C-Y-R health on Instagram. Uh, I'm currently a Doximity Digital Health Fellow. And you can also see news of me on our website, sepsis.org. Feel free to reach out on me um, on LinkedIn as well at Karen Molander. Wonderful. So we are all over social media in this edition of NAMT Radio. There isn't a, a uh, platform that we haven't talked about. And, and we're all on Instagram as well. I'll just throw that one in just to say that we mentioned it. So that was another edition of NAMT Radio. Um, As I say, it's been chock full of information. We'll have an amazing amount of references. Uh, Don't forget before we go, though, that uh, the annual general meeting of NAMT is coming up 
on September the 19th at uh, EMS World Expo in New Orleans. And I know, Rom, we're going to see you there. I don't know if you're going to be down, Karen, but uh, it would be lovely to, to meet you if you're going to be down there. But uh, we're all going to be there. So we would love to see you. And so that's it uh, for this edition of uh, NAMT Radio. My guests were Rom Duckworth and uh, Dr. Karin Molander. Uh, thank you both very much. And uh, we'll see you all next time. 